When Charles Darwin first saw an orangutan at the London Zoo in 1838, his first encounter with a non-human ape, he was fascinated by her behavior. The orangutan's name was Jenny. Her clear emotions, her astonishment at looking in a mirror, the way she seemed to understand the human zookeeper. Darwin wrote, Let man visit orangutan in domestication, hear expressive whine, see its intelligence when spoken to, as if it understands every word said. See its affection to those it knew. See its passion and rage, sulkiness, and very acts of despair. And then let him boast of his proud preeminence. Man, in his arrogance, thinks himself a great work, worthy the interposition of a deity. More humble, and I believe true, to consider him created from animals. Not everyone had the same reaction to orangutans. A few years later, uh, Queen Victoria saw also at the London Zoo, a different orangutan, also named Jenny, and she was a bit disgusted. Uh, Jenny was dressed in a gown, and Queen Victoria said she was, quote, too wonderful, uh, and, quote, frightful and painfully and disagreeably human. Painfully and disagreeably human, says Queen Victoria, while for Darwin, the ape is an inspiration for humility and perhaps feelings of fraternity and connection. Welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green new podcast where we use books to make sense of our environmental crisis. Um, today we are talking about apes and how humans respond to them and the internal lives of the apes themselves. And to do so, uh, I'm going to talk mainly about two different books. Um, it's going to be more chimpanzees than orangutans, but I wanted to start with orangutans because I just love that uh, Darwin quote and the Victoria quote. So the first book we're going to talk about is a novel called Talk to Me by T.C. Boyle that came out last year in uh, September, I believe. Um, and the other is a nonfiction book that came out around the same time, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parable for a Planet in Crisis by Amitav Ghosh. Uh, the novel Talk to Me is very much about chimpanzees and one chimpanzee in particular. Um, the Nutmeg's Curse, which I won't get to until toward the end, um, isn't necessarily about apes very much. Uh, he barely mentions apes in particular. Um, but what it is about is how our stories and our fiction um, represent uh, non-humans and how they do and don't give voice to the rest of the non-human world. Um, so I'm going to use that as kind of a lens to analyze why I, um, yeah, why Talk to Me by T.C. Boyle stuck to me, even though it's not necessarily you know, the best novel I've ever read, but it's something that stuck with me a lot. I read it almost a year ago, and here I am doing a whole podcast about it. Um, before we get started on that, though, I do want to um, remind people of the Storytelling Animals book club. Um, you can join that in two ways. Uh, you can join one meeting for totally free. Um, if you just sign up for my free weekly newsletter, I'll send you an email once a week. It'll tell you about the podcast, my writing, good things I write on the internet. You'll love it. Um, and you get a free uh, attendance of the book club. Our next meeting is Tuesday, July 26th to discuss the ministry for the future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, you know, I first read it a couple years ago, but as I've been returning to it before this book club, I'm again, just really impressed by its ambition and the way that Robinson lays out, um, you know, a, a really plausibly optimistic and scary future as we, you know, confront climate change over the next several decades. Um, I think there's a lot worth engaging with and maybe critiquing and maybe, um, you know, being uh, more positive and affirming about, um, but I'm excited to discuss it. I wanted to discuss it as soon as I read it two years ago. I'm excited to discuss it with all of you. That's going to be Tuesday, July 26th at 8.30 Eastern, 5.30 Pacific. 
Um, again, if you want to join, either join the free weekly newsletter um, or you can join the uh, book club uh, on a more permanent basis uh, by supporting this podcast on Patreon at $7 a month. That's you know less than $2 an episode. Um, and you get to join the book club uh, and you get early access to episodes. You get to ask me things, stuff like that. Um, there are other levels you can join the podcast at more per month or less, um, on patreon.com slash storytelling pod. That's how this podcast is funded. That's going to help me, uh, you know, I'm, I'm planning to update my website in the next month or so. I'm planning to, you know, try some different software and, um, all your support helps me do that. Helps me spend more time doing this and less time doing other things that might demand my attention. Um, okay. So that takes care of housekeeping. Um, Let's get started with Talk to Me and the Nutmeg's Curse. sold to be shipped to a United States laboratory um, to the American scientist Robert Yerkes, who had decided that these apes were human enough to be uniquely useful for scientific experimentation, however frightful, painful, or disagreeable for the chimpanzees themselves. In the decades to come, further captures and breeding would turn four chimpanzees into well over a thousand in the U.S. who would be infected with diseases, blasted into space, and everything in between in the name of science. A small handful of them were taken from their mothers as infants to be raised in human homes, wearing human clothing, learning to communicate in human sign language, um, to see what would happen and how much language they could pick up. Uh, the most famous of these is Nim Chimpsky. Um, he's the subject of the documentary Project Nim. The name is, is an allusion to Noam Chomsky for reasons I'll discuss later, um, but Nim was not the only one. These chimpanzees, uh, Nim and his ilk, form the inspiration for T.C. Boyle's newest novel, Talk to Me, uh, a fictional tale of a chimpanzee named Sam and the humans among whom he lives. Uh, Boyle is a California-based author who's written, I don't know, 20 or so novels, a bunch of short story collections, um, often dealing with, you know, human connection to the environment or to non-human nature. Um, And yeah, so his, his latest novels, Talk to Me, uh, when California undergraduate Amy Villard first sees Sam, the chimpanzee, on a game show in 1978 in the novel. Sam is wearing diapers and a polo shirt. Amy's reaction is um, much more Darwin than Queen Victoria. Quote, it was, this, it was as if a door that had been closed all her life had suddenly swung open, Boyle writes. People talk about life on other planets, Amy thinks. But this was right here in front of us, a whole other consciousness just waiting to be unlocked. Did apes have God? Did they dream? Make wishes? In the pages that follow, Boyle explores many different ways of responding to an ape. Uh, Amy's fascination, uh, other people's fear. Some are humble, some have an urge to control. Um, some, you know, have that Victorian revulsion. Some use the apes... Um, or see the apes kind of as a careerist instrumental, um, through careerist instrumental lens. Uh, and a lot of people see the ape, uh, Sam in particular, and think, isn't he cute? 
But what sets this book apart is that his interest is not merely in the human responses to Sam, but on the experience of Sam himself. So Talk to Me is set primarily in the late 1970s and early 80s, and it's about Sam, who is like Nim, a chimpanzee taught to use sign language. Um, the other two main characters are Guy, who's a self-aggrandizing professor who sees Sam as a ticket to fame and professional success, um, and then Amy, who becomes uh, Guy's assistant, an undergrad caretaker, uh, who genuinely loves Sam, um, and the three live together uh, in Guy's house and form a dysfunctional and quite chaotic family. Um, most of the text is through either Guy or Amy's perspective, but every other chapter is told from Sam's perspective. And though these are shorter than the other chapters, they were to me the most memorable, um, attempting to render Sam's own frightened and confused internal monologue uh, and kind of showing the cost of putting other animals under our control, no matter how well-intentioned. These striking passages lend a dark undertone to the sometimes madcap adventures of the main plot. Um, so in chapter one, when Amy has her revelation about wanting to know Sam, does he know God, etc., um, she finds out that Guy, is the professor studying Sam, work, happens to work at her university and happens to have an opening for an assistant. So Amy ends up Guy's assistant, um, and you know when you're reading the first chapter, maybe you think, ah, oh, things are going well for Amy, where's this going to go? Um, but chapter two flips that on its head when it introduces us to Sam's perspective. It begins. He didn't have a word for words, or not yet anyway, but he knew words all the same. He knew key. He knew lock. He knew out. He was a prisoner, though he didn't have a word for that either, and even if he did, it would have been meaningless. Key, lock, and out are rendered in all caps here, uh, a technique Boyle uses to show the words that Sam would know a, a, a sign for. Boyle goes on that Sam wanted his blanket, a blanket, any blanket. He was cold. He was distraught. He rocked from side to side. He stared at nothing. He plucked the hairs from his arms, his chin, the crown of his head. Trichotillomania, and he didn't know that term either. How could he? And what would it matter if he did? Would that get him out of here? The reader quickly figures out that this scene is set in the future. Um, Sam is not going to be raised at Guy's house with Guy and Amy forever, but will eventually end up in a cage. Uh, cage is another word rendered in all caps, a word Sam knows. This is more or less what happened to the real-life chimpanzees Sam has modeled on. Um, and also like these real-life chimpanzees, Sam begins this phase of his life with something like an identity crisis. Uh, Sam and other chimpanzees raised by humans are successfully able to sort photographs of humans and photographs of chimpanzees into two separate piles. However, they place the photo, uh, Sam places the photo of himself in the pile with humans. So in the next perspective chapter for Sam, he puzzles in, in fear over Quote, the shapes in the other cages that showed their teeth and screeched at him like bugs. The real question, though, the persistent question, was what was he doing here? The book is divided into three main parts. Um, so the first uh, is, you know, Amy gets the job and starts living at Guy's house and working with Sam. Amy and Sam hit it off instantly. Um, and again, it's mostly from Amy and Guy's perspective, but you get these foreshadowing chapters from Sam's. Uh, and you know this domestic bliss, or at least domestic attempt at bliss, won't last. Um, and then the later two parts of the book are where Sam ends up and, and where things go from there. I won't um, give too much away. 
So throughout, Boyle is clearly fascinated by how people see Sam. Um, in an early chapter written from Guy, the professor's perspective, after he hires Amy, uh, he writes, She seemed to have an instant connection with him, and the empathetic transference, as if she saw him as a child, a human child, and not simply a lab animal in a psychology experiment. A lot of people in the book associate Sam with a human child. Um, at one point, Guy's trying to get on TV. Uh, he's in a, you know, a TV station office. He's so cute, one of the secretaries says, um, just like a little man. Precious, another one says. Um, Guy sees the look on their face and thinks it was the look that softens women's faces when they are in the presence of toddlers, puppies, kittens. An instinctive look, a mothering look. Obviously, there's, um, you know, some gender essentialism guy is not a, uh, you know, super impressive feminist throughout the book. Um, but yeah, there's this idea that people think Sam is like a cute little kid, uh, but Sam is not a cute little kid. There's another quote later on when Sam is a little older, a little larger, a little stronger. Uh, someone who sees him for the first time thinks that he looked like a buffed-up, overgrown kid in his jumpsuit and polo shirt with the sleeves cut off, a sixth grader on steroids. This cuteness is something Boyle wants to complicate. Sam is not a human child, and as amusing as it can be when he's dressed up or eating cheeseburgers, drinking wine from a glass, you know, smoking pot, um, even amusing when he's throwing a tantrum. At one point, Guy reflects that, quote, whether this was hilarious or not, life with the chimp, he hadn't yet decided. Um, Sam is also ultimately owned by a scientist, by Guy's boss. Um, he's property, who's put in a situation where he never learns to socialize properly with other chimpanzees um, because some professors wanted to use him to advance their career. And then he doesn't have the skill, and he's thrust into a situation where he has to socialize with other chimpanzees. Um, none of this is like a cute kid. Um, you know, it made me think about when I see cute animal videos online, you know, on social media or whatever, uh, I often wonder, is this video cute because it's, you know, an animal autonomously navigating their world in some surprising or charming way? Uh, or is what's cute um, actually, you know, a sign of stress? Is the animal captive in a zoo, perhaps, or a pet dog or cat who's put into a stressful situation for laughs? Um, you know, there are articles that come out every once in a while about, you know, cute animal videos where some animal expert is like, actually, the face that animal is making that you all think is so cute is a sign of stress. Um, there was, you know, there was a scientist who, who said that, uh, you know, he went through a bunch of pictures of dogs getting hugged by humans and determined that most of them, based on their body language, weren't actually enjoying getting hugged by humans. Um, and that, you know, the cute face they make might actually be a sign of stress. Um, this got, I think, some pushback, some justified, but a lot of it not. Um, I think, you know, at best it's an analog to the, you know, uh, the stereotypical, like, overbearing aunt who squeezes her nephew's cheeks and kisses him on the face uh, when, you know, he clearly doesn't like having his cheeks squeezed or whatever. Um Maybe it's as similarly harmless, if that's harmless, um, but I think it's also a sign that, you know, sometimes we see animals as cute in a way that kind of treats them as objects. Um, maybe we do this to kids, human kids too. Um, and I think Boyle is 
wants us to remember this, that they are in fact not objects, um, and that cuteness is maybe condescending to a chimpanzee like Sam, even if I'm sure he was incredibly cute. In the book, we know Sam is Spartan cunning and actually knows the word cute. He knows, has a concept of cute and knows that people like when he acts cute. And he knows enough to act cute on purpose at times to manipulate people. Um, but especially because we know what awaits him, um, you know, we know he ends up in a cage at some point. We don't forget the ways in which he's a victim, that he's manipulating people, not because he's an evil mastermind, but because he's trying to navigate a weird situation where he's a chimpanzee growing up with humans in the 70s. That's not necessarily where chimpanzees are best suited to thrive. Another difference between Sam and a human child is that Sam's way stronger than any child. Uh, he bites people at times, he gets into trouble, causes havoc, you know. Um, in uh, There's a television appearance Sam has where he's, quote, well-behaved and magnetic. Um, but the whole time one of Guy's students is holding Sam's lead. Uh, Guy, uh, from Guy's perspective, the chapter reads, the audience wouldn't know anything about it or what it implied because the lead was hidden under his shirt. Um, but we, the reader, know what it implies that Sam is on a leash. It implies Sam is ultimately a prisoner, however well-behaved and magnetic he is. There's a similar scene in the 2011 movie Rise of the Planet of the Apes, um, which also seems partly inspired by these Nimchimsky-type uh, experiments about apes and sign language, but it goes in a more science-fictional direction. Here, Caesar the chimpanzee is... Uh, going to the woods with James Franco's character, named Will, I believe, and Caesar's wearing a leash as well. And Caesar sees a dog wearing a leash, um, and this kind of upsets him. Uh, you know, am I a pet, he asks Will, using sign language. And Will assures him, no, he's not a pet. Um, but the moment clearly rankles and disturbs uh, Caesar, this idea that he kind of realizes, wait, I'm not an equal here. I've, I'm in a degraded situation. Um, Sam, uh, in Talk to Me, the novel repeatedly reminds us, is no pet either. Characters are constantly observing that he is no dog. Um, people, uh, at one point, um, Guy reflects that people outside the field couldn't fathom the depth of communication apes were capable of. He goes on, quote, What they failed to appreciate was that apes were of a different order altogether. Dogs and cats have been bred for thousands of generations to breed out the to breed out the undesirable genes, domesticated to create an all but emotionally neutered animal designed to serve human needs. But apes came straight out of the wild. They were independent, resentful of captivity. You stared into their eyes. You saw yourself staring right back. Um, you know this may or may not be unfair to dogs and cats, but it does get to something that um, you know even in the kind of most. Uh, benevolent version of the tale, you know, dogs and humans co-evolved to depend on each other. Um, I do think, obviously, in a lot of situations, and, you know, definitely in the way we breed them, um, we don't actually put dogs' interests first and, um, you know, do them a lot of harm through captivity. Uh, but I, there maybe is an important difference in that chimpanzees are not, you know, evolved to be dependent on humans. They're not evolved to live in our homes. Uh and that, um, you know, they also have cognitive capacities of a different kind than dogs. Um, and yeah, they, it's more plausible that they would be, uh, more independent and resentful of captivity. Um, 
Guy, guy also says that to put Sam in the category of a dog or cat was demeaning. Beyond that, uninformed and unimaginative to the point of stupidity. Sam had presence. He had charisma. And Guy was going to show it off to Johnny Carson and all the rest of America. Obviously, this shows that Guy is is torn throughout between kind of seeing Sam as this fully robust uh, individual with an internal life and as a tool who's going to make him famous and a scientific celebrity. Um, Amy, too, is, is preoccupied with the idea of Guy, that Sam is not a dog. Uh, one of her first reflections on meeting Sam, he wasn't a pet, was he? He could talk. He could reason. He knew things, secrets of existence no human could ever know. And he was going to reveal them to her. So she wants something out of this too, um, but she is you know less invested in superstardom than guys. I think she, more than him at least, cares for Sam as an individual. Um, but uh, it's worth noting that T.C. Boyle uses that language of he could talk, he could reason. Um, I would not be surprised if this was an intentional allusion to uh, a famous statement from the uh, philosopher Jeremy Bentham in the 1780s. The question is not, can they reason or can they talk, but can they suffer, Bentham wrote. And he's writing about, um, you know, the idea that other animals should be treated better and be extended some legal protections. um, And that just because they can't talk, um, although Bentham does say that they're, you know, a dog is more reason, a horse is more reasonable than a human infant. Um, but he's saying, that, yeah, being able to talk, being able to reason isn't necessarily grounds for ethical consideration. What matters is can they suffer? It's worth noting that Bentham, this did not Bentham, turn Bentham into like an all out animal rights activist. You know, he still ate meat. He still justified some animal experimentation. Um, and a lot of contemporary utilitarians um, who, you know, might go farther in uh, showing concern to animals and Bentham did but still inherit his idea of, you know, suffering being kind of the most morally relevant aspect of how we treat other animals. Um, I think there's a lot of good to this in that we, you know, human institutions can cause so much suffering that it's important to draw attention to this. Um, But perhaps if that's uh, many of these utilitarians, if that's all they're focused on, don't necessarily think these animals' lives matter to them. A lot of them don't necessarily worry too much about killing um so much as suffering while they're alive um they you know some people say they they see animals as kind of receptacles of pleasure and pain that are somewhat interchangeable um they tend to look at you know the suffering of billions on a mass scale rather than worrying too much about the animal as an individual and it's you know whether the animal might um you know have an interest in continuing to live or or other forms of um you know, moral recognition beyond uh, simply pain and pleasure. Um, you know, there's a lot to say here, uh, and it's a subject I've written about to some extent before. I'm hoping to do an episode on it um, next month. But what's interesting here is that Boyle, I again, I'm, I'm guessing intentionally, though I don't know for sure, um, subverts this premise. Uh, he specifically says, Sam can talk um, through sign language. Sam can reason. Um, and that I think, I don't know, I, I can't help but read it as an explicit challenge to, um, to kind of a more utilitarian reading and a a request of the reader to really try to look at Sam as an individual person with rights, perhaps. Um, 
Sam can talk. Non-human language is a thorny category. This is not the episode where I do a deep dive into it. Um, there are a lot of really, um, I think, impressive uh, feats of communication in the non-human world. Um, from you know, I would include chimpanzee sign language. I would also include um, you know, prairie dogs are often um, mentioned as having very sophisticated vocalizations. They can specify you know color and stuff um uh, dolphins i think are, are really fascinating there's this um like we don't totally even understand everything they're able to communicate to each other and how they do it um yet a lot of people do still argue that sort of true symbolic language that is as you know as flexible as our language is is something uniquely human um and you know, Noam Chomsky is, is someone who argues this and says that kind of chimpanzee sign language doesn't count. Um, you know, a challenge to this that many have made is sort of, uh, you know, if if chimps have been able to learn a lot of sign language, why haven't we been able to become fluent in chimpanzee communication and language? Um, you know, that testing them on sign language and using that to determine whether they have full language capacities is, is stacking the deck because it's making them play our game and we aren't able to play their game. Um, but even so, they were able to do impressive things with sign language, um, you know, express novel ideas through through uh, signs they use, use signs appropriately. Um, some, some chimpanzees have been shown, you know, making signs while they sleep. Uh, when, you know, you might wonder what that suggests about their dreams. Uh, that was in the One Animal's Dream book that I discussed a few weeks ago. Um, so suffice to say, uh, yes, there may be some particularly impressive features of human language, um, but lots of other animals have very complex communications, you know, vocalizations, not, but also body language and other forms that we struggle to understand. So I think we should give respect where it's due and uh, concede this point that, yes, Sam can talk, Sam can reason. Um, reason, I think, is... I don't know, more clear. They solve problems. They use tools. Uh, they, you know, yes, they, they must be reasoning in some way. Um, as an aside, uh, to go back to orangutans, there was this great article a few weeks ago or a few months ago about um, orangutans and, and colonialism. Um, but uh, one of the fun facts from it, I'll, I'll link it, it's called Red Apes, I believe. Um, is that according to the Javanese... Orangutans are able to speak, but choose not to do so to avoid being forced to work. Um, and then the, later he says, the first Europeans to hear of orangutans maintained a vague hope of enslaving them, recounting the belief that they are able to speak, but choose not to do so. Um, so, you know, maybe there's something worrisome in uh, maybe if we acknowledge that apes can speak, this wouldn't automatically mean we're going to treat them with more respect. It might just mean, oh, we are then able to use them for more. And in a way, that's what, um, you know, the scientists like Guy are doing. Uh, Guy is super impressed by Sam's capacities, but he doesn't want to set Sam free for it, or at least he doesn't only want that. He he wants to use Sam for it. Um, and uh, this is actually the, the premise of Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, which is from the 1970s. And it's what the, the recent rise of the Apes movie is, is roughly ba based on. Um, is that basically apes become kind of this, it's set in the 60s or 70s, and, and apes become this sort of uh, 
like servant class um, because humans have been able to train them to be servants. There's a lot of science fiction too, where when a AI gets smart and is able to talk artificial intelligence, then that's when they just also become enslaved or servants. And um, so it's not, you know, automatic that recognizing other creatures' ability to talk and reason will mean that we will treat them with more respect. Um, but I do think, hopefully many would agree, that it should mean that we treat them with more respect. However, there's another double-edged sword here with all this talk of talking and reasoning. Um, you know, on the one hand, I think coming to learn more about chimpanzees in particular can strike a powerful blow against the human-animal binary in general. Um, you know, chimpanzees are, do share a lot with humans, obviously. Um, not only are they our closest genetic relative, but um, we are there. We are more closely related to chimpanzees genetically than chimpanzees are to gorillas or orangutans. Uh, they're close to us. Um, and I think this means that getting to know chimpanzees really does undermine um, the idea that humans are the pinnacle of all creation, that we are supreme. Um, obviously, Jenny the orangutan did this for Darwin quite explicitly in his writing. Um, and maybe that's what was so painful and disagreeable for Queen Victoria is the being forced with the idea that actually, you know, humans aren't quite as unique or special as um, she had believed. Um, Guy, Guy, the scientist, is, is I think, sensitive to this. He, he really is impressed by Sam. At one point, he's trying to show Sam off to get another TV booking. Um, Amy has dressed Sam in, quote, a miniature suit with a checkered shirt, checked shirt and glossy red tie, and a pair of Converse high tops she'd found in the kids' section of the local footlocker, also in red. Guy thinks he looked jaunty and casual and almost human, which was the point, exactly the point. If we could conceal our nakedness between blue, beneath blue jeans, skirts, blouses, and Hawaiian luau shirts and go about constructing the world in our own image, then why couldn't another species do it too, or at least participate? We could reason, we could talk, and so could chimps. Again, there's reason and talk, the Bentham reference. Um, and so Guy, who's not some selfless benevolent figure, He's using Sam for his career, but he's still excited about this prospect of other species participating in constructing the world, which I think is a, a, a cool idea that, that acknowledges the, their agency and that we are all shaping our environments, that there's not some inert nature that humans alone control. Um, you know, Sam is almost human, he says, and with that comes some humility. Um, again, there's Shades of Darwin. Later, uh, one of my favorite lines in the novel, another character encounters Sam for the first time and thinks, he was so human, but at the same time he wasn't, as if the whole point of him was to undermine the human species. To undermine the human species. Um, later, uh, she shook Sam's hand with its long fingers and callous knuckles, and it was just like shaking hands with anybody else. Um, I think this idea that chimps can undermine the human species is... is relevant in animal activism today. There are organizations like the Non-Human Rights Project um, that specifically focus on trying to gain legal rights for chimpanzees as well as other apes, elephants, and um, dolphins and whales uh, who are sort of been hand-selected by them as a set of species whose cognitive abilities are particularly impressive to humans, um, and it's worth noting particularly human-like. Um, most countries have banned invasive experimentation on chimpanzees, uh, 
Uh, of course, they continue to experiment on all sorts of other creatures. United States was among the last to do so just a few years ago, um, and my understanding is that not all of the chimpanzees have been necessarily retired to sanctuaries yet, but um, at least they aren't still being experimented upon. Um, so clearly there's something special about chimpanzees and other you know, long-lived social large-brained creatures that suggests that maybe they do uh, we require special protections. Um, they do make specific moral demands of us in a way that maybe other species don't. Um, but it also calls into question the idea of some vast gulf between humans and the rest of the animal kingdom. We often say things like human and animals as if animal is just a monolithic category, like a chimpanzee and a sponge are, you know, more or less the same type of thing. Um, but each animal is a different type of thing. Um, or maybe I shouldn't use the dehumanizing uh, language of thing. Um, each animal is a different type of being, a way of being in the world. Um, but this brings us to the other side of that double-edged sword I mentioned earlier, which is when we welcome chimpanzees into a special club. Maybe we let in the orangutans and the elephants too. Are we just going to leave all the other creatures outside of it? Um, I do think people have criticized the Non-Human Rights Project um, for being so focused on the, you know, quote-unquote highly intelligent creatures that when meanwhile there's still so many millions upon millions of mice and rats still used freely in scientific labs. Um, it's great that chimpanzee experiments were phased out, but, um, you know, what consolation is it to them, to the mice and rats? Um, you know, if Sam is not a dog, as Boyle keeps emphasizing, uh, does that mean it's okay to treat dogs just like property? Um, you know, this does briefly come up in the novel, um, and I do think the way it's handled gives at least the impression that, oh, maybe it's bad that we treat dogs like property too, that we can buy and sell and do almost whatever we want with them, um, that they're legally our property and not, you know, beings with rights of their own uh, beyond maybe a few protections. But this isn't the focus of the novel. The focus is on Sam, and the focus is often on how Sam is very distinct from a dog. And I do think there's still a risk of reinforcing a hierarchy with human and maybe the most human-like animals at the top, and everyone else positioned below according to how similar they are to us. Um, you know, I, I asked uh, the philosopher Lori Gruen about this question um, a few years ago. I interviewed her. Um, after the U.S. ended chimpanzee experimentation. And I asked about this danger, uh, and she pointed out that it is worth um, worth really recognizing the ways in which chimpanzees and certain long-lived social uh, animals are special, and, and we have particular sorts of relationships with them, and they are have particular ways of acting in the world, and um, that these ways of acting do, uh, you know, incur particular moral duties and, or, or I don't know if that's the language you would use, but, um, yeah, like chimpanzees are phenomenal. Um, but she, she also said that the, what we just need to do is start doing the same thing for other creatures. Like, you know, why don't we also start thinking about the ways in which rats are really impressive and interesting and social and intelligent, um, and, you know, that some of the impressive things about chimpanzees are because they are like us, but other animals are, you know, 
it's not like you judge an animal by how similar they are to us. You judge an animal by the ways in which that animal is um, on its own, on their own merits. Um, and I think if we look at historical examples, we can see that considering chimpanzees does often lead people to start considering other animals too, um, like Darwin. Um, you know, Jane Goodall uh, obviously comes to mind. When she first saw chimpanzees using tools, the scientific establishment at that time thought that only humans use tools. But once Goodall dealt that first blow, this edifice totally collapsed. And now we know examples of all sorts of animals using tools. Um, and Jane herself, of course, has gone on to be an advocate not only for chimpanzees, but for all animals, including farmed animals um, and, you know, other animals used in research as well. Um, so, you know, she learned and spent more time with chimpanzees than almost anyone. And, and understanding how impressive they were didn't turn her into an ape chauvinist. Instead, it kind of helped her on this broader battle against human supremacy. Um, there's a similar story, perhaps, with primatologist Franz de Waal. Um, much of his research was on chimpanzees and bonobos, uh, but in books like Are We Smart Enough to Know How Smart Animals Are, he explores the surprising cognitive feats of a wide variety of animals. Again, probably most of the examples are, are primates and apes in particular, um, but he asks us to consider uh, other species as well. He's not an activist in the way that Jane is, um, but he does explicitly reject in the book the idea of a hierarchy or a ladder of intelligence with humans at the top. Um, he's also interested in that, this idea that different animals are good at different things shaped by their needs and environments. And it's not a ladder, it's just a world of different forms of intelligence. Um, you know, at some skills, such as certain types of memory, other species exceed humans. Uh, so maybe we shouldn't put ourselves at the top of a ladder. Um, again, this is an, it's an example of someone whose research on apes then led him toward a more egalitarian view of the entire animal kingdom. Um, one more example uh, from some of you may have listened to one of the first podcasts I did was with the novelist um, Laura Jean McKay. Uh, she wrote a novel called The Animals in That Country, in which um, humans gradually like come to understand the vocalizations and body language of other animals uh as if those animals are talking to them. Um, and when she was researching the book, she went to a, an ape sanctuary, sanctuary and spent time with uh, apes and said it was like this profound experience that stuck with her the whole time she was writing the book. But there's no apes in the book. Um, the main character is a dingo, and throughout the book, uh, the, the human main character, you know, toward the beginning can un starts to understand the dingo, that the dingo's a little incoherent at first. Um, and then, you know, later she starts to understand birds. And, and by the end, you know, mosquitoes are screaming blood at her. Um, and it's, you know, in her novel, you can see how as the plot progresses, we, um, you know, go toward animals that are less and less closely related to humans and, you know, start to understand a broader variety of, of animal worlds. I can look back at my own childhood, too. Um, I remember I gave a presentation on dolphins in second grade, and I think that same year did a book report about Jane Goodall. Uh, and part of what excited me about dolphins and chimps was how smart they were. Uh, that's part of... They fascinated me so much. I was a young human, and they were smart in ways that made sense to a young human. Um, and they were two of my very, very favorite um, animals, and I was a big animal lover. Um, 
But look at me now. Uh, I'm a vegan animal rights activist with a podcast called Storytelling Animals. I didn't stop at Chimps and Dolphins. Um, so this is why I think Talk to Me by T.C. Boyle is a an important book. It's a good book. It's not a great book, I think, in terms of just quality as a novel. Um, but I think it it matters because he really just makes this risky, ambitious attempt to imagine the inner life of another creature. Um, and, you know, who knows if he's at all right about what would be going through the mind of a chimpanzee like Sam in that situation. But just asking us to consider it is asking us to really step outside ourselves in a way that I think, um, you know, we can read stories about chimpanzees. We can, you know, some people can even interact with chimpanzees like Jane Goodall or Franz DeWall. Um, but only fiction really can take that sort of risk of trying to imagine what it's actually like from the chimpanzee's perspective. Talk to me is certainly not the first work of fiction about an ape. Uh, you can look back to Kafka's Report to the Academy, um, the original Planet of the Apes novel, the ensuing movies. Um, in the last decade or so, there have actually been kind of a lot of literary fiction novels about chimpanzees, um, from Life of Pi author Jan Martel's The High Mountains of Portugal to Benjamin Hale's The Evolution of Bruno Littlemore. There's a bunch more. Um, I have not read all or even most of these, but there are three things about Talk to Me that... Um, stand out, at least from what I know about the others and the one I've read, um, and maybe you want to do this podcast about it. Um, the first is that if you compare it to the examples I just mentioned, T.C. Boyle lets his chimpanzee be a chimp. Um, Sam is human-like, but he's not a human. He doesn't learn to talk eloquently in spoken English. He's, you know, can get aggressive. He, I mean, obviously humans can too, but he behaves like a chimpanzee. Whereas Kafka's character Red Peter, or obviously the apes in Planet of the Apes, um, plenty of more fanciful examples, learn to talk eloquently in spoken English uh, and, you know, become basically humans in the shape of an ape um, rather than a chimpanzee, a creature that is similar but different. Um, in fact, uh, Boyle's first title for the novel before he settled on Talk to Me was The Familiar. To be clear, I don't think this makes it better or worse as a novel. I think fiction writers can make their own choices. But having a non-human main character who isn't just a hairy human might do more to destabilize and blur the lines between human and other. Um, might just disorient us a little more. The second thing is that it spends a decent amount of time in the head of this creature, exploring this fundamentally other mind. One of my favorite novels of the last ten years is We Are All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. This involves a chimpanzee too, although I won't tell you exactly how, um, but the story is ultimately about the humans, um, maybe their response to the chimpanzee, but also their memories and how they are shaped by childhood trauma, and it's a great novel. I, you know, I think it's a better novel than Talk to Me, uh, but it doesn't go quite as far to subvert the primacy of the human perspective. Um, and the third thing of interest is that it's actually less overtly political than some of these, um, and we are all completely beside ourselves, for example. There's a character who's an underground animal rights activist, um, which is honestly pretty typical for books covering these themes. I read a lot of books about, you know, environmental novels about environmental issues or animal issues, and they almost all have underground activists. Um, Boyle himself has written environmental novelists, environmental novels with political activist main characters. 
there's 2000's A Friend of the Earth, uh, 2011's When the Killing's Done. Uh, both of these are very much about how humans relate to the other creatures, but even if the main characters themselves are radically opposed to anthropocentrism, um, you know, human-centered worldview, the main characters are still all humans. Um, by contrast, neither Guy nor Amy seems particularly invested in any sort of broader pro-animal politics. Amy does seem to eat a lot of vegetarian food, but I don't, I think not entirely. Um, I read it almost a year ago, uh, so I might be wrong there, but um, I think she does eat meat at one point. But instead, what Amy is interested in is Sam, a particular individual who happens to be a chimpanzee. Um, You know, after it was going to be called the familiar, Boyle was then going to call it I Am Sam. The epigraph is still... I am Sam, Sam I am, from Dr. Seuss's Green Eggs and Ham. What is provocative here is that Sam is not a stand-in for all other animals or even a stand-in for all their chimpanzees. He asks us uh, to look at Sam as a unique character in the novel and understand, uh, you know, each other animal as a particular distinct uh, being. I think this, even if it's not, um, you know, encased in a certain political view, this might demand more of us in terms of ethically relating to this other type of being. It might ask us to consider more than whether um, we are, you know, particularly abusing them or particularly, you know, torturing them, having them in a small cage um, or killing them or letting them be. It asks us to consider more about what does Sam need to thrive and flourish and, you know, be his full self. I do think this approach caused some confusion with the critics. Um, I read a few reviews, some of which were positive, but the New York Times in particular was fairly negative. Um, I think it's okay not to like the book. Um, Like I said, I liked it, um, but you don't have to. Um, But I think the New York Times review by Michael Callahan gets a few very important things wrong. Um, He does admit that, quote, it takes courage to devote a third of your novel to the imagined, often incoherent thoughts of a chimpanzee and trust that your readers will happily tag along. But you get the feeling that Callahan wasn't always happy to tag along, whereas for me, this was like the most exciting part of the book. Um, and they were chaotic, Sam's thoughts, but I think often incoherent is maybe a bit too strong. I think he could have read them a bit more closely. Anyway, um, where Callahan really baffles me is he asserts that, quote, it eventually becomes clear that it is Sam who is really in charge, the puppeteer pulling the strings of those around him. Boyle uh, is clear that at times Sam can be manipulative, but did you miss the part where from his very first chapter he's in a cage and that he's property owned by a scientist whose guy's like abusive boss? Um, Even stranger is Callahan's conclusion that, quote, in the end, Sam simply comes off as what he is, a spoiled and bratty four-year-old. Again, it's hard to call him spoiled when he spends a decent chunk of the novel imprisoned and abused. He acts out within the space that he can, certainly. He has tantrums, he throws things around, he bites people. But the reason he does this, in part at least, is because precisely that at no time is he actually in charge. At all times is someone else ultimately in charge of him. The lead is on him. Callahan isn't sure the point of it all, uh, that apes are just apes, he speculates, that humans suck. Um, But if after reading the book you still think apes are just apes, I think you might have missed the point. Um, Apes are apes, but there's nothing just about it. Same as an ape, but 
he's not just an ape. He is Sam. I am Sam. Sam, I am. I'm not bringing this up just to beat up on Callahan or the New York Times. Um, I think people just might not be accustomed to a literary realist fiction novel where, you know, it's not sci-fi or fantasy or something, um, where a non-human character is on equal footing with the humans. Uh, it reminds me a bit of the reaction to Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the Dawn of the Planet of the Apes movies in 2011 and 2014, I believe. For some awards, Andy Serkis, who played the lead chimpanzee Caesar through motion capture, was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which is absurd. I recently rewatched the movie, and Caesar is obviously the main character. He's not a supporting character. Like James Franco is important to the movie, but when they separate, we spend way more time with Caesar than we do with James Franco. Um, reviews also complained that the human characters were not as interesting as... Um, as the ape characters for those movies, which to be clear is a fair complaint. It's, you know, if you want better fleshed out characters, um, that's an okay thing to want. Um, same in this, uh, even some of the positive reviews uh, thought maybe Amy and Guy were relatively stock types and not that interesting. I think, um, I don't know, it, it works for me because Boyle is a satirist and he is emphasizing the the color of, of Sam, but I get it if you want them to be better fleshed out or if you were dissatisfied with them. Um, but I also think that uh, maybe people want more from them because they weren't really expecting a chimpanzee to be the true star. I don't have any other explanation for how you can read Sam's struggle to navigate a life of captivity and abuse and being led about through a strange and unfamiliar world that's not designed for him. And take away only that he's a spoiled brat, a four -year, spoiled bratty four-year-old. Um, there must be something deeper going on here. So this is, gosh, 50 minutes in, is where I finally get to Amitav Ghosh. Um, some of you may know him as the author of The Great Derangement, Climate Change, and The Unthinkable, which was the very, very first book in the Storytelling Animals Book Club back in February. Um, in that book, Ghosh makes the argument that the realist novel has done a poor job addressing the climate crisis, and in fact, its very realism um, partly prevents it from depicting climate chaos for a variety of reasons, including the fact that it's not prepared to um, show the the non-human world, you know, quote-unquote nature, as something with agency in a story. Um, in that book, uh, Ghosh actually lists Boyle as an exception. Um, he lists a lot of exceptions that I wish he sort of had explored the exceptions more. But anyway, um, I think it's a great book. Uh, and in the years since it came out, there have been even more books to address the climate crisis. Talk to Me, set in the 1970s, is not one of them, but I do think it's relevant to Ghosh, and in particular his, his new nonfiction book, The Nutmeg's Curse, where he sets another related task before writers that's at once broader and more ambitious than merely representing climate change. This is the great burden that now rests upon writers, artists, filmmakers, and everyone else who is involved in the telling of stories, Ghosh writes. To us falls the task of imaginatively restoring agency and voice to non-humans. The idea that non-humans had agency and voice used to be common sense, uh, Ghosh argues, so why does it need restoring? Um, so he quotes the indigenous scientist and thinker Max Liborin, who says, Land is, quote, the unique entity that is the combined living spirit of plants, animals, water, human histories, and events. Um... But through colonization, Ghosh argues, we sought seeing land as 
a living spirit and instead something inert, something that, quote, had no meaning except as resources that could be harnessed to generate profit. This outlook, he writes, reflected a metaphysic that was then emerging in Europe, in which matter was seen as brute and stupid, and hence deserving of conquest, with the most destructive of technologies, with nothing but profit and material wealth as ends. Much of Gosha's book is about sort of the European colonizer elite who um, developed and came to enforce this ideology. And in general, he argues that this process of rendering nature inert was intimately tied up with colonization and thus with the idea that the humans who lived there too uh, were expendable and interchangeable, um, even valid targets of extermination and genocide. Um, and if these indigenous humans believed that land and spirits had agency in the world, this was because they were backwards and superstitious to the colonizers. Both these people and their ideas must be quashed. Their languages and stories and myths and intellects and cultures, even their ability to feel pain, all cast as inferior. The colonized were represented as brutes, he writes, quote, as creatures whose presence on earth is solely material. He goes on, and here I quote at length, As a process, then, the muting of a large part of humanity by European colonizers cannot be separated from the simultaneous muting of, quote, nature. Colonization was thus not merely a process of establishing dominion over human beings, it was also a process of subjugating and reducing to muteness an entire universe of beings that was once thought of as having agency, powers of communication, and the ability to make meaning. Animals, trees, volcanoes, nutmegs. These mutings were essential to processes of economic extraction, because, as the philosopher Akil Bilgrami observes, in order to see something as a mere resource, we first need to see it as brute, as something that makes no normative demands of practical and moral engagement with us. It is by representing a vast continuum of human and non-human beings as brutes that the colonizer turns them into resources to be used as slaves, servants, and commodities. Or, as Ben Ehrenreich puts it, only once we imagined the world as dead could we dedicate ourselves to making it so. End quote. Part of this imagining is the idea that humans are the only storytelling animal, an idea Ghosh pushes back against in the book. In fact, uh, reading the essay on Brutes in his book is what landed me on the podcast name Storytelling Animals for this podcast. In fact, you may have just heard my girlfriend's dog Walter drink his water in the background. I'm going to let his agency be part of this podcast story. So a narrative, according to William Cronon, is a sequence of events invested with meaning, more or less. Um, and for Cronon, this is uniquely human to invest events with meaning. But this is precisely what animals do. Um, what enables them to exist in the world as animals is to make sense of their surroundings and choose what to act on. Um, Ghosh writes, quote, Any pet owner knows that a dog understands as meaningful the relationship between the home, the park, and certain times of day. It's clearly not the case that the dog lives entirely in the here and now. Its experiences are sequential and are understood to unfold in time and space. Bless you, Walter. Ghosh goes farther. It is perfectly possible, then, that far from being an exclusively human attribute, the narrative faculty is the most animal of human abilities. Animals tell stories, they make sense of their world, and we tell stories about other animals. 
in many cultures, ghost notes, many stories were about um, our interactions with other plants, animals, and spirits. Um, stories were a big part of how we made sense of our relationship with them. So if in recent time our stories, um, or I should say at least our serious literary novels for adults, um, have come to relatively exclude non-human voices to not really be um, about how we interact with them and how they interact with us, but instead they're confined to the background, if at all, um, this may impact how we as a culture look at non-humans in real life. Um, Yes, I think children's stories and genre fiction might do better, um, but I, I roughly think Gosha's argument is probably true that certainly, you know, in our mainstream culture and novels and movies and stuff, like, non-humans don't have agency in the way that they, they do in older stories. So perhaps our literature, uh, Gosha suggests, is part of what inures us to our ecologically exploitative society. It's part of what sort of trains us to see non-humans as inert. Conversely, literature can help us break out of this trap by restoring this non-human agency and voice to our stories. What might this look like? Gosha said one of his favorite novels recently is The Overstory by Richard Powers, a sprawling book covering many human characters. Sorry, a brief interruption there as Walter very clearly and successfully communicated to me that he needed to go outside. But yes, the overstory, sprawling story covering many human characters and many generations, but in which trees and forests are central to the plot. Um, it can even be said that they're among the most important actors and agent with, within the narrative. It's one of my favorite novels, uh, too, of recent years. But again, I can't help respecting Boyle's gambit of really trying to get inside the mind of another species for pages at a time, in a way that doesn't merely anthropomorphize but treats the other creature as a full and real individual. Again, similar, related, but different. Um, I think this is maybe the most literal way of going about uh, Gosha's charge to restore agency and voice to non-humans in our stories, is to just have them narrate our stories from as close to their perspective as we can imagine. Yes, Gosh wants us to go further than just chimpanzees, um, to trees and forests, volcanoes, nutmegs. And, you know, I think some of these things might have different kinds of voices and agency than animals with nervous systems do. And, you know, I'm hoping to explore that in a near future episode as well. But either way, um, if we are to extend our empathy outward, we have to start somewhere. And perhaps our closest relatives can help us get used to the idea. Boyle's book suggests we shouldn't just try to put a leash on the non-human world, bend it to our whims, put it under our control. Because whatever we're doing to this planet, even if humans have a special role to play in both the problem and the solution, we've been doing it together. So, after a few different titles, Boyle landed on Talk to Me. Let the chimpanzees talk to us, let the rats and crocodiles and bumblebees talk to us, perhaps even the trees, forests, mycelia, nutmegs, volcanoes, who knows? Let's let's try to listen. Um, and then the next step, which isn't in Boyle's novel, I think really even Amy uh, fails to wholly understand Sam, despite her love for him. But maybe the next step is once they've talked to us, once we've listened, really try to do our best to um, let what they say shape how we all live together. Um, and maybe this is a way toward a less exploitative relationship with the rest of the world, human and non-human. Ghost suggests that it is. I think The Nutmeg's Curse is one of my favorite books, maybe my favorite nonfiction book on climate change that I've ever read. Um, 
So even if I don't agree with everything in it, he's convinced me of that. Um, and we're at an hour, so that's most of what I have to say about Talk To Me. Actually, I have even more to say about Talk To Me, but I'm not going to subject you to it. Might be some mild spoilers in there. Um, but I read a lot of books about animals and the environment, and I'm sure it's not unique in the world. There are a lot of books, but this is just maybe the most ambitious attempt I've seen in a novel to really give voice to a non-human. Others do give voice, but to, to try to let us inside of their minds. Thank you for listening. Um, please, you know, share this podcast with people you think might be interested. Um, please like it, follow it, subscribe. Um, also consider signing up for my free weekly email list so that you get updates on the podcast. Um, and also, I really appreciate any financial contribution um, to the Patreon. Any Again, any monthly payment you make allows me to keep doing this into the indefinite future. Um, have a good day. Thank you.